Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? My name is Cassie Hamer. I'm an author of contemporary fiction and I'm delighted to be staging a podcast takeover today with fellow Sydney author Amanda Hansen, who's just released her sixth novel, Lovebirds, a moving portrayal of love and loss in the older years, but with plenty of comedic moments. Listeners, I loved it and it's a pleasure to welcome Amanda to the podcast. Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here, Cassie. Can you tell me a bit about the spark for this book? Was there a particular moment where you thought, yes, this is what I have to write about in Lovebirds? Well, it's got a lot of themes in it and it's been a difficult one to uh, describe. It was really an evolution of my thought over the last few years where I feel as though older women are often seen as quite one-dimensional there's no for some reason human beings have this idea that when we're young we'll always be young and old people have always been old and um, so as you get older particularly for women we get more marginalized in that people think we have nothing to say and we've never done anything exciting and yet I look at friends of my age and my generation I'm in my mid-60s and I knew them when they were young and fabulous and turned down marriage proposals and had um, ill-fated affairs and, you know, travelled the world, all these different aspects of them. So particularly when you've had friends for 30, 40 years, you see them in not just three dimensions, in a dozen different dimensions. And so I conceived of this idea of Elizabeth as, as a bit of an every woman and we first meet her at her best friend's funeral, which sounds a bit sad, but is obviously um, uh, one of the highlights is through a series of misadventures. She ends up having to take her budgie to the funeral. 
And um, we can see that she's a bit out of kilter with people around her and a bit, a bit prickly. And so we gradually start to see, go back in her life to when she was a child, when she was a teenager. And we see all the things that have made her grumpy over the last 40 years, I suppose, and start to build a more dynamic picture of who this woman is and actually uh, how stoic she is and, and the things that she's had to um, get through in her life. Yeah, I think the book is really deceptive. You summed up there that it does focus on this main character, Elizabeth. In some ways, it's a bit of a road trip story because she teams up with her troubled teenage grandson and they go in search of her estranged husband, Ray, who yes. she hasn't seen in 30 years. And Ray is a really key character in the novel. You've spoken about exploring this theme about the invisibility of older women, but the other theme that came through really strongly to me was that of trauma, and in particular, the trauma caused in this case by the Vietnam War, and not just how it ruined the lives of the soldiers who in many cases had no choice but to go over there and fight, but then of the decades-long impact on the friends and family around them. And I can see in the author's note and the acknowledgement that you did a substantial amount of research into the Vietnam War. And I was wondering, what, what were the main learnings that, that you took away from that research and that you wanted to put into this book? Well, it's quite a tricky one because although I do like to explore important themes of family and relationships, my genre is uplit. So it is an uplifting story. There's always redemptions for people. So even though there was nothing directly about what Ray suffered, we sort of hear that secondhand. There was nothing directly about the Vietnam War because he goes away and, and Lizzie's left behind. I really had to read a lot of stuff and talk to a few vets to get a sense of how it might have affected him, how that um, behaviour might have had a rock-on effect, which we now know it does. We now know that PTSD is actually uh, inherited in DNA and that the children of people with PTSD also suffer uh, the same, not to the great same extent, but there's a lot more study to show what they go through. So um, what I learned from all those books is that it was just a load of nonsense. It was so political. That's one of the things that has been really hard for the vets coming back. Nobody I spoke to felt it was a worthwhile effort. Everybody has been traumatised to some degree. I mean, there were there are accounts in the books that I read that I had to skim the pages because they were just so dreadful. The, some of the things that people experienced and saw, I just literally couldn't read them. And... Um, so, yeah, I just feel as though I, I wanted to show Ray how much promise he had, how much promise young men have, and then forced to go off and fight a political war that really had nothing to do with us. And, of course, you know, I was uh, a teenager during that period, so I remember all the drama and the, the protests and, uh, and the um, soldiers coming back. Uh, to have that snatched away is just... Yeah, 
terrible. It's heartbreaking. It was a really moving aspect of the novel. And, and you alluded there in your answer to this idea of, or this, this very real notion of intergenerational trauma and how it's passed from one generation to the next. And we see that in Lovebirds because, as you say, Liz has got quite a few things to be grumpy about. And, and one of those is the fact that her son, one of her two sons, is in jail, um, having, having uh, assaulted a business partner. And then that um, her grandson, so this, this son's son, is also going through a really difficult time. And, and that grandson is Zach. Uh, Zach is a very typical teenager, very grumpy, very influenced by the video games that he's watched. But he was so authentically drawn in the book. And I just wondered, how do you tap into, I mean, you tap in so beautifully to Elizabeth, who's probably a woman more of similar age and similar age yourself. Yeah. But how do you tap into the teenager? Because I actually had to ask my teenage daughter for um, the meaning of some of the words that you'd use. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, you use the word eshe about some. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> you don't know that eshe is. No, you? I said to Ruby, what's an eshe? And so she sort of explained it to me. But how did you do that? Do you have teenagers in your life? Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, so I I distinctly remember being 15. I remember, you know, these kind of witty asides I used to make and how badly they went down with my dad and who just obviously didn't get my sarcastic wit. So I do remember the feeling of being 15. I have um, had a 15-year-old son, so one of the phrases that he used to use all the time, which I gave Zach, was when you'd sort of explain to him, this is the way it's going to be, and read him the right act, he would just look at you and say, debatable. <laughs> and you're like, well, it's not debatable. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that's right, everything's debatable. And then I have a close friend who has a son who also got a credit in the back of the book um, called Taz. So I could go around and try things out on him. But strangely enough, sometimes I would be writing scenes that I remember from my son and then I would go around to their house because they live just around the corner. I'm there quite often. And I would see him enacting something that, you know, like when they eat, when they walk in the door after school and they're like a wild animal into the cupboards piling on wheat bicks, you know, vacuuming it out of the bowl. And so it was it was a lot of fun to write, Zach. I always have um, humour in my books. I always have this um, not funny ha-ha but incidental humour that is very typical of a character or very atypical of a character. Mm. And um, Zach and, and Elizabeth obviously have there's a lot of humour in their reactions to each other. But uh, writing Zach's dialogue, it was fun because obviously never use two words if you can use one. And so everything has to be crunched down to the basic communication, but also adding that humour in with making that funny as well. And the other real point of humour, it does come from Eric Budgie. And that was one thing I really appreciated about this book was not just how well-drawn some of the minor characters were, but how well-drawn Eric was and the levity that having this budgerigar Eric provided. And do you have a budgie or no, what's I'm your budgie at all? 
And I don't that? have a budgie. Well, I had to read a book about budgies. That's oh, what writers okay. do. We just yeah, know. Yeah. I don't yep. have a budgie. Um, I, you know, I used to know somebody, a former mother-in-law, 40 years ago had a budgie, and she was very fond of that budgie. And so I guess I started to see it as, okay, Elizabeth is alone and she's quite lonely now and she's kind of on the fringes of everybody's life. It's not, this is kind of rightly um, business, but it's not good to have a character just wandering around alone in their own house. They need somebody to bounce off. And so I thought, who that might, who might that be? Oh, you know, a budgie might be, it's not a close pet. It's not like a pet you cuddle. So there's, it this still maintains this kind of distance that she has, if that makes any sense, um, that she's very fond of. But, of course, um, you know, Eric is a little bit of a, a loose cannon verbally because, you know, she sets up straight off that he remembers things. And evidently budgies have quite long memories and can kind of suddenly regurgitate some phrase they heard quite some time ago. So she never knows what he's going to say next, basically, and he he often comes up with the quite the wrong thing for the wrong moment. Yeah, he's like a deeply inappropriate Greek chorus who um, <laughs> sort of simultaneously highly embarrass her but also diffuse situations in a lot of ways. But obviously there's that beautiful connection between Eric um, and and the title of the book, Lovebirds, and mm. I think there's something to be said there about Liz and her sense of being trapped and and then finding freedom. And there is a bit of a heart stopping moment in the book where Eric actually goes missing and she thinks that she's lost him forever. So I think it's actually a really clever sort of metaphor for some of the things that. Um, that Liz goes through but something I wanted to just go back to and and it is a really major theme in the book is this idea of women grappling with aging and in particular the invisibility that seems to happen to women of a certain age and I'm just wondering why why do you think that is why do we judge older women more on their function and and you know, judge them on their value in terms of what they can give to others in, in a way that we don't necessarily judge older men. We don't judge older men like that at all. There's no pressure on older men to be useful. Uh, there's no question that older men are seen to have some sort of gravitas and, and people ask them for advice, even though some of their advice could be 30 years out of date. Um you know, I, I never hear somebody say, oh, I need to go around and talk to woman's name about my financial situation, you know, about my super. You know, I've said to people, ask me about super. I'm an expert. I'm a writer. I researched it. I know everything about it. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, we are, we are part of the baby boomer cohort and we've got a pretty bad rep these days as it is. And I think that we are, in some ways, we are affected by the, I dare say, the patriarchy of our younger years. Because when I started work, that was a time when women had to leave their job. Many women had to leave their jobs when they got married because they were taking a man's job. Um, so men and women had more definite roles. I think it was 
made very clear to us that if, a, if there was any kind of thing like sexual assault or whatever, it was the woman's fault. She was wearing the wrong thing. She was in the wrong place, wrong time. So we, we are still locked in this kind of paradigm of being young and lovely and sought after and having to put up with attention that we don't necessarily want. Um, in that way, I find the invisibility quite liberating. But if you're trying to get served in a cafe, not so much. I just think that women are still kind of stuck in this paradigm of we're either young and lovely and desirable or we're old. And the one of the reasons I really want to write about older women is we are often depicted in books by younger women as the nosy neighbour, the interfering mother-in-law, the um, nasty, you know, witch that lives on the hill, as if young women and older women are enemies, which we are not. And so, um, yeah, I think there's this idea that older women need to make themselves useful, join things, volunteer, make things. And, look, I'm just not a joiner. The minute I join something, I don't want to go anymore. I just... <laughs> It's just not my, you no, know. I think people, you're alone there. <laughs> and no, people say, would you like to join this? And now I just go, no, I'm sorry. I just don't join things. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think as old women, we need to open up the opportunities for the younger generation and say women don't have to get married. They don't have to have children. They don't have to be useful. They can actually just live their lives the way that they want to. Do you see hope for change in that regard? I mean, obviously in the last couple of years with the Me Too movement and with everything that's happened this year in Canberra, I do sense the winds of change blowing in relation to young women and their sense of empowerment. Do you have a hope that that will translate somehow into the way that we perceive older women or do you think that ageism is a completely separate issue and and needs to be approached in a different way well I think we've got two issues there one is I think younger women need to talk more to older women about the whole me too movement I've had some conversations that you would find horrifying with older women who have said oh well you know it was her fault or it was she's you know she was there she had too much to bring that uh, and I kept saying that it doesn't matter what the woman was doing. And then I've had friends say, well, I blame these boys' mothers. What? 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 <laughs> but that's another generation. So it needs to be made clear that, yes, it is not women causing this. In terms of ageism, um, yeah, there is this idea that as you get older, you get more and more useless and you're hopeless with technology and so there's a lot of assumptions made about older people that are simply not true. And they're very disempowering. I think that it's, um, it's more helpful if we see that, you know, let's say we're calling olders. There's a wonderful woman called um, Ashton Applewhite, who is an activist ageism, a lot of... Um, alliteration there yeah. but um you know she talks about the fact that older people are capable of doing all of these things right up my, my dad was still texting and skyping when he was 91 you know we're quite capable of doing all these things and we don't need people assuming we can't and taking over from us and 
Uh, that is disempowering. It's it's better if we can assume that we are actually very capable people who've done all sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what, I mean, Elizabeth in the novel is a very capable person. She doesn't always necessarily succeed. She does have some awkward moments, particularly with her other son's family, where she's trying but not always succeeding to be the grandparent that she wants to be to his children. But it's always coming from a place of great intention and and it is a very hopeful book because she's a very useful, useful person Um, and she does... She does ultimately, I think, succeed in what she's setting out to do. So I think you have presented a character with agency, you know, and who does affect change within her family. Yes, and look, there is so much change, you know, and I, I am a great supporter of millennials and I try to keep up with everything uh, that is changing in their world. But there is a great divide. You know, I I mentioned to a friend my age the other night about the gender-neutral pronoun. She was like, what? (laughs) Now, young people would say, how could you have possibly not heard of that? Well, older people often don't get the memo because they are associating with older people and they don't come into into react with with things that are happening in the younger world or read the same things or we are all in these isolated bubbles. So Elizabeth suffers from the same thing is that, you know, her um, son has married into another culture and she wants to be culturally sensitive but she doesn't know how to go about it And, and there is no handbook. And when she goes there in trying to be on her absolute best behaviour, she is making everybody awkward. And so, yeah, I think often the the intention is there, but how it plays out and how it's perceived, um, you know, they say we uh, judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. Mm. And so her, her actions are at odds with her intentions. Can you tell me a little bit about the writing process for this book? How long did it take and what did you find to be the most challenging aspects of executing the story? Um, well, yeah, I, well, to make it moving but not sentimental, to make it, you know, genuine, a genuine love story as opposed to a romance, I'm not keen on romance I don't really believe in romance I think that's a very superficial thing so I wanted to create a a love between Elizabeth and Ray that was kind of eternal to use a romantic term Um, so I look I am I'm I'm fairly disciplined but mostly I'm just dogged I just go on day in day out uh, just getting the words on the page you know, like everybody else, I have that, you know, little creature on my shoulder saying, oh, God, that's the worst dialogue. That's so wooden. That's, oh, that's just all full of people opening doors and going up and down stairs and too much stage management and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, it's I, I um, redraft and redraft and redraft over and over and over again and, and go through and, I, you know, smooth things out. Particularly if you write humour, you know, it's very timing is everything and putting timing on a page is uh tricky and it requires a lot of buffing up 
but I, I really like to send. So it takes me about, probably took me about a year and a half. So it takes me um, a fair while. I'm not very quick, but I like to send something to the publisher that is absolutely finished, that needs very little in the way of structural or um, line editing. So do you work to a daily word count? And, and are you a plotter or a pantser? I am a pantser. Okay. Yeah. So um, mostly I try to do 500 words a day, uh, but I generally um, I preserve my mornings so that I'm at sitting down at sort of nine o'clock and work till about 12, which is, you know, you start off very fresh and lots of ideas. Oh, that's one of the little. And then by 12, you're just tired. But then I might have some few ideas in the afternoon and just make a note of those and come back to it. Or, uh, But, yeah, I find late in the day the freshness is gone. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather do um, admin. But I do use the Pomodoro. I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro app. Yeah, is that which the, is the, the sprint technique where you set a timer yeah. and you write uninterrupted yeah. for, is it 20 or 30 minutes? Well, I do um, 40 minutes and then I have a 15-minute break and I do all my housework in those 15-minute breaks. So you wouldn't want to stand between me and the dishwasher because I literally <laughs> it goes bing and I get up, brrr, un unload the dishwasher, load it up, slam the door, back to my desk. That's true. Because yeah. is that, that, is that, yeah, is that sort of writing unfiltered and unedited or is it is it slow and careful or is it just a, a, a sort of like a vomit draft sort of a thing bit of both so I will write it uh, fairly roughly and then when I start the next day I'll go back and tidy up what I wrote the day before and then I start again and then I will tidy up the always only the day before I don't go back over and over uh, or if I do I get myself in a right old tiswas um but yeah just tidy up the day before so it's it's sort of a tidy draft um and then I just push on to the next thing and do you write from beginning to end chronologically because the structure of this book is such that we do flash forward between contemporary events and then we go back to Lizzie's childhood starting from when she was 10 years of age and, and we sort of um you know, switch between the two. Was that how you wrote it or did you write the contemporary storyline first and then the backstory separately? I think I drafted them uh, separately first and then I, I um, you know, second draft wove them together because you want, uh, you want that um, flashback to the past to kind of fit nicely into the present and so it needs to be interwoven in there. And one thing that really struck me about those scenes of backstory or going back into Lizzie's past is that you actually wrote them in present tense where the contemporary sections are written in past tense. But it was so interesting to me how using the present tense gave it such a sense of immediacy and also yeah. just helps really distinguish in the reader's mind, oh, okay, right, we're going to a different section now. Was was that always the intention to write? Yes, that's that? always the intention. If, if it, uh, When I wrote The Olive Sisters, I did it the other way around. I wrote everything that was happening now in the present tense and everything in the past in the past tense. But uh, quite often if I'm not sure what tense I will start and I'll write a couple of pages and then rewrite it in the other tense and just see how it pans out. But yeah, I felt that the uh, past would just be fresher and a bit more sparkly in the, um, 
in the present tense. The present tense. So, yeah. I think that worked, yeah, really successfully, to be honest. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is that in the book, um, Elizabeth wonders a few times to herself what song would be played at her funeral um, because she's gone to her, as you mentioned, the story begins with her going to her best friend Jeannie's funeral and they play a song there and it gets Elizabeth to thinking, but she can't really define to herself what that song would be. Um, do, you, do you have any insight now as to what Lizzie's song would be? And, and second, secondary to that, what would your song be? Have you thought about what that? What would my song be? Um, born to be wild, that might be my song. <laughs> <laughs> born to be wild. Um, Lizzie's song is in the last line of the book. Yeah, well, we can't give that away, <laughs> clearly. And nobody's um, to skip to the back and find out what it is because that's that was just, it's just that is her um, raison d'etre. That is her reason for being. That's what the work that she needed to do. So it's it was yeah, yeah. That's that, all that, I can say. That is, and that's fair enough too. The, the the last line, or the last line that I remember actually is um, relates. I'm not going to give anything away, but relates to her grandson. And I found that a really touching way to finish the book. And I think it achieved exactly what you wanted, which was that it was moving without being overly sentimental which is a, a really difficult balance to strike I think but um look we'll, we'll finish up in a minute but I just wanted to ask you overall what what would you like readers to take away from this book what I love about writing what I love about reading is to escape into somebody else's life is to and I often like to have characters that I have the reader judge uh, in a in a not very um, positive, see them in a not very positive light, and then just shine the light somewhere else. So I guess you know a sense of understanding of people, you know, don't always say what they mean, or um, you know that there's these, there are, as I said earlier, these other dimensions. But you know, I would just like people to enjoy the experience of escaping into Lizzie's life and and following her and Zach on the road and having a laugh and, and, and engaging with the book. I just try to write compelling and engaging fiction for uh, particularly for older women because I don't think there is enough written about older women and particularly by older women. It's, it's quite a different thing to write it when you are this age because there's so many nuances, little tiny things that you know about, um, being, I mean, I'm in my mid-60s, uh, about being a woman of this age and having come through all of those various times that we've come through that you can just add into the mix that people will recognise. I think, yeah, I, I always think that, that reading is a lesson or an exercise in empathy. And I definitely felt by the end of the book that, I understand Elizabeth and I'd become extremely fond of her. So I certainly think you achieved that. And I just want to finish by congratulating you on the book. And I would thoroughly recommend Lovebirds to anyone of any age, because I think young women, young men have as much to learn from this as anyone, but certainly going to appeal to, to women 
in that older age group who you rightly say do not get to see themselves represented as often as they should and in the nuanced and and uh interesting and complex complex ways that they should so congratulations on a really beautiful book amanda well thank you cassie i'm glad you enjoyed it i did and i really enjoyed our interview so thank you very much for that as well thanks for having me